If you turn in your Bibles this morning, our text will be from Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. This passage comes after Jesus has been traveling in the Gentile territories north of Galilee, and he comes back down from that area after feeding 4,000, not including women and children. And here in this passage in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, he is confronted once again by his antagonists, the Pharisees, and in Matthew 16, it tells us that the Sadducees are also accompanying them. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The scriptures read, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving them orders, orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, Seven. He was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. And once again, we pray that you would grant to us understanding and illumine our minds and open the eyes of our heart. God, we give you thanks for your word is precious. As it itself declares, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May you be honored May you be praised in Jesus' name, amen. I was reading the website of a counseling ministry when I came across this particular definition of an antagonist in the church. It was entitled, Who Are Antagonists? Quote, antagonists are individuals who, on the basis of non-substantive evidence, go out of their way to make insatiable demands usually attacking the person or performance of others. These attacks are selfish in nature, tearing down rather than building up, 
and often directed against those in a leadership capacity, unquote. In the book entitled Antagonists in the Church, the following true story is chronicled, quote, for a number of years, Reverend Smith, which I don't think is his real name, served a congregation in Oklahoma. During that time, an antagonist led, launched a vicious attack against him. Fortunately, the situation was handled well. The antagonist left the congregation after inflicting only minimal damage. After serving the congregation in Oklahoma for 15 years, Reverend Smith received an opportunity to move to a church in California. He decided to make the move and felt good about it. His installation day in the new congregation was festive. A spirit of celebration marked the special afternoon service attended by well over a thousand people. Following the service and after some picture taking, the new minister and the presiding clergy moved from the church towards a fellowship hall downstairs. As the pastor walked down the stairs, he paused for a moment, looked out over the large group of people milling around and waiting for the fellowship meal to begin. Two people caught his eye. The Oklahoma antagonist and his wife had traveled more than 1,500 miles to attend the installation in order to sow discrediting rumors about the new minister, unquote. That story is a modern parallel to the story of Jesus even here. Though Jesus faced incredible antagonism from the religious leaders, these religious leaders, even in the previous chapter, many of them, especially the Pharisees, had traveled more than 60 miles by walking or donkey, coming up from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. And they accused him in the previous chapter, his disciples, of not following the tradition of the elders. For, for them, that was paramount to sin. They had been following him, all of his ministry, dogging him, planning, conspiring, plotting, watching every opportunity they could in order to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had been spending some time, as I mentioned, in the Gentile area north of Galilee. After spending about a year in Galilee, he moved up to the Gentile area in order to show his disciples, to spend more time with his disciples, but to display to him the nature of saving faith in the Syrophoenician women and also that they might know that the grace and the compassion of God is also not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. He spends some time there, and we know that from this point on until his crucifixion is less than a year now before he goes to the cross. But the leadership of the Jews had it out for him. They'd been following him, and when he came back down into the area of Galilee, which is in northern Israel, they were fuming and fomenting. Back even in John chapter 5 and John chapter 7, the scriptures tell us they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to kill this man named Jesus. And so here, once again, they come, they confront him in order that they might entrap him so that he would be discredited among the people. And in this text this morning, we see two particular things that antagonists do as they confront Jesus. Number one, they test God. And number two, they spread false teaching. Number one, they test God. And number two, they spread false teaching. First of all, they test God. 
Verse 11, the Pharisees came out and they begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the everyday religious leaders that were among the people. They taught the people all of the laws and the traditions, all of the regulations that they had to have them followed in order that they might be, quote unquote, right before God including all of the Mishnah and all of the tomes of religious writings the scribes had compiled in order that they might follow to the T these laws burdening the people. These were the people who were among those who came up, and there were the Sadducees as well. Matthew 16.1, in the parallel passage of this, says it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came up. Now, these two groups were diametrically opposed to one another. I mean, they were part of the Sanhedrin, the group of 70 that led the Jewish people. They were two parties. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the ones who ran the temple. The Pharisees were the ones who were among the people. They were the, more the religious leaders. They were the ones who believed in many things that the Sadducees denied. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. The Sadducees denied angels. They denied a lot of the supernatural. They were the ones who were the modernists, the liberals of the day. They were bitterly divided in the Sanhedrin. But when it came to Jesus, they were united in their hatred for him. Both of them wanted Jesus out of the picture. So they asked Jesus for a sign, the scriptures said, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, in the Bible, there are positive and negative forms of when it comes to, quote-unquote, testing God when we read. In the Old Testament... There is an example of a positive test when God calls his people in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only example by which God tells his people to test him. And that particular word in the book of Malachi is the Hebrew word, bachan, which means to examine, to scrutinize, to prove, like you're testing some gold to make sure that it's pure gold. And this type of testing comes as not only a direct command from God to his people, Israel, but towards the people who already have faith in God. But there is a negative type of testing that we find in the Bible when it says to test God, and that comes from a different word, a different word that is nakha, which means to try, to test, or to tempt. It is used in Deuteronomy 6.16, where God commands Israel not to test him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massah. Now, what happened in Massah? Massah, you might remember, back in the Old Testament, When Israel came out of Egypt, they were following Moses. There were this millions of people who followed Moses into the desert, and there was a place in which they had no water. And they began to complain against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? You brought us out here to die. And they doubted God. They doubted the provision of God. They doubted the character of God, even though they saw God part the waters of the Red Sea, even though they saw the power of God at Mount Sinai, no, they still doubted God and they wanted 
tested him to prove himself. Why did you test me at my son? That was sinfulness. Not out of faith, but out of sinfulness. The motive of the Pharisees and the Sadducees here is that same word when Jesus quotes here, or when it says that they had the motive to test him. They wanted to discredit him. That word that is used here, nakha in Deuteronomy, and also this word here, to test Jesus, here in chapter 8, is the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. This was the negative side. Satan wanted to cause Jesus to sin, to tempt him to sin. And that is the type of sign that they wanted from heaven. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, wanted Jesus to fail. And they asked for a sign from heaven. Now, back in those days, there was a belief, there was a prevailing belief, a false belief, that on earth, demons could perform miracles. But only God could perform miracles in heaven. Demons could perform miracles on earth, they believed, but only God could perform miracles in heaven. That's why in Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus of doing all the works that he did and casting out demons by the power of Satan himself because they believed that miracles that happened on earth could be very well done by demons like Pharaoh's magicians in the book of Exodus. They didn't believe who Jesus claimed to be. And they wanted, that's why it says, a sign from heaven. Something like, well, Jesus, why don't you make the sun stand still? Why don't you uh, make that whole constellation rearrange itself? Why don't you uh, do something spectacular in the heavens, make the moon turn to blood or whatever it might be? And if Jesus couldn't do it, well, it would prove their case that Jesus was not divine. Matthew 16, 2 continues that dialogue. Matthew 16 tells us what Jesus said in response to their question of a test. He said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? but cannot discern the signs of the times? Those sayings corresponded to an age-old mariner's saying, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. In other words, for many years, they kind of gathered from observation that, look, if there's a red sky at night, the next day is going to be fair weather. It's going to be good. But red sky in the morning, there's going to be a storm brewing, and you'd better be concerned because it's a sailor's warning. And the religious leaders who confronted Jesus accepted the reliability of that folk meteorology without question. That's why Jesus said that. You say this thing. You know how to predict the weather, and you believe that. They were adept at predicting the weather, but 
They didn't believe the signs that Jesus already gave. He gave many signs. As you know, in the Gospel of John, John chronicles for us specific signs that Jesus gave in order to show that he himself was God. In fact, all, all of the history of Israel, no one had ever done the things that Jesus had done. No one in the entire history of Israel had done the things that Jesus had done. And from casting out demons to healing all sorts of diseases, from commanding the winds and the waves to feeding tens of thousands of people, those were miracles beyond the imagination of anyone who had been there and had ever done in their entire history. Yet they didn't believe. Jesus already had plenty of signs that he gave. But they didn't believe. They were good at predicting the weather. The world even has that. The world has all sorts of... We even have great, great meteorologists these days. I mean, when there's a hurricane brewing out in the middle of the Atlantic or something like that, you see all these models, that, you know, the European model, the American model, and all these colored lines of where it might make landfall in X number of days, and they're able to warn people, you've got to get out of town. You'd better close up your shop. You'd better take care of yourself. And all of these people can prepare, and they know exactly how severe it will be, or they say to themselves, gosh, this is gonna. This is this is impending. We've, we, the, these floods are gonna come. You could have X number of inches of rain. Even when there's tsunamis, tsunami warning sirens will go out. Or there's gonna be a heat wave in certain parts of the country. They are able to predict generally about how hot it's gonna be, and they adjust for various various uh, issues that may be happening. They can tell you how long that heat wave is going to last and when the rain is going to come. They're all able to do things like that with some degree, some measure of accuracy. It's not only that. People are great these days at being able to predict real estate trends or economic trends or business trends. Some of you, maybe your job is predicting things based upon sales forecasts, based upon the history or inventory, how seasonal things are, etc. You can make somewhat of predictions that are based upon information. People do that all the time. People make careers of that type of a thing. But at the same time, just like these religious leaders, society has become less and less knowledgeable about the scriptures and about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, given all of the firsthand witnesses and hearing Jesus themselves, seeing Jesus and hearing from Jesus, they simply suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 would say. So Jesus says in verse 4 of Matthew 16, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left and went away. And that sign of Jonah was what? As Matthew 12, 40 says, for as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They sought a sign in order to test Jesus, a phenomenal sign. He, Jesus had already given a multitude of signs, things that no one else on the earth had ever done, and yet people will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Jesus saw right through their motives. They really weren't looking for a sign to prove anything. They wanted to test God. Antagonists want to test God. 
You might recall a couple of months ago when we came across the passage, Matthew chapter 12 also chronicles it, where they accused Jesus of doing his work by the work of Satan himself. It was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I shared with you back in December of 2006 how there was this horrible internet-based project called the Blasphemy Challenge in which a group called the Rational Response Squad, a group of atheists founded by Brian Sapient and Rook Hawkins Challenge and invited people to submit videos online blaspheming God as if to test God that if anything, nothing happened to them, it would so-and-so prove that God doesn't exist. People will do that. They will say, prove to me that God exists. Or if God would do this, if God would show up right here, right now, I'll believe. Remember somebody said that? We know that's not true. They're simply making some outlandish statement. And even if they did, they wouldn't believe. Not unless God drew their heart and opened their heart to accept the truth. Because in the face of overwhelming evidence that Jesus gave, no matter what you and I do, The hearts of people are hardened and their eyes are blind that they cannot see and receive the truth unless God opens their heart, gives them a heart of flesh, opens their eyes that they might see, which we will see in the coming weeks. Jesus was not going to give them a sign. This was not a failure for Jesus. He had already given them many signs of who he was. But these antagonists wanted to test God. And that's what antagonists want to do. They want to test God. So knowing this, Jesus wanted his disciples to be very aware of what his his antagonists were doing, what these Jewish leaders were doing. Jesus leaves, and he wants them to know. Antagonists, secondly, spread false teaching. False teaching. Verse 14. They had forgotten to take bread, did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Verse 14. And he was giving them orders, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven or yeast, as you very well know, if you don't happen to know, when you make bread, you, you put some yeast in there, you put some leaven in there, and it makes the dough rise and gives you... Uh, rising bread, and it spreads throughout, the, spreads throughout the bread quickly. That's what it's used for. Now, leaven in the New Testament is always used, always used in the context of something that is negative, with the exception of the parable of the leaven, a woman who puts some leaven into some dough, such as in Matthew chapter 13. And that is a parable that talks about how the kingdom of God is going to spread. But every other place other than that parable, it is speaking of something that is evil or negative. But the mindset of these disciples, they were still very worldly. They were still thinking about things that you and I probably would be thinking about too. Lunch. They began to discuss with themselves the fact they had no bread. Did you bring lunch? I didn't bring lunch. It was your turn to bring lunch. Did you sign the sign-up sheet? I told you. I reminded you last week, but you didn't bring lunch. I brought lunch last week. It's your fault. Now we don't have, we only have one loaf of bread. That was characteristic of the disciples. Their mind is so much like on food, and some of you might be like that. When is this guy going to get done? I'm going to get lunch. We got an appointment at 1 o'clock with my relatives. 
These disciples, they always thought like that. You remember when they were thinking about what? Jesus was, remember when Jesus was talking about his own death? He's talking about how he's going to go to the cross. And his disciples are talking about, "Mm, you know what? We want to sit on the right and left hand of God, Jesus, when he gets into his kingdom. Why don't we ask, uh, you know, mom over there, mom's sister to go and ask on our behalf. They're jockeying for power when Jesus is talking about his death, or they talk about what they can do in their own strength, and here they're talking about food when he's talking about something else. So immature, so much like us. Jesus is aware of this, verse 17. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And he goes on to rebuke them for their worldly-mindedness. And how often is it that we are like that too? We fail to see. Matthew 16, 12 tells us that after he rebukes them, it says, Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, Jesus was warning them about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew 16, 12. Now, what was the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees, again, were the legalists of the day, but they were also the ones who taught that you had to follow the law, you had to follow the tradition of the elders. They were the ones who attacked the disciples for not washing their hands. The Sadducees, they were the liberals, okay? So you had the legalists and you had the liberals. The liberals didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They only held to the first five books of Moses. They were the ones who saw the temple. They ran the temple. The Sadducees did. They ran the temple. They ran the temple as a business, when people came and they wanted to exchange money, when people came, they had to have a certified, certified animal for the sacrifice, and what they did was they ripped the people off in order to line their own pockets. They saw the temple as a business. They were the liberals who didn't believe in the supernatural there, and they propagated false teaching. They propagated false ideas that were in direct opposition to the truth and the Word of God. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Because what were they hearing? They were hearing the teaching of the Pharisees. You've heard your scribes and Pharisees say this, but I say to you, this is what it really means. He warned them of the Pharisaical and the Sadducees, the leaven of their teaching. And having come out of that, Jesus had led his disciples out of that system. They were to leave all of that leaven behind. You remember when Israel in the book of Exodus came out of Egypt? They had been in Egypt for hundreds of years. When they came out of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, they were not to eat leavened bread. In fact, they were to have a feast of unleavened bread. Why? It was symbolic to them that everything that they had been entrenched in Everything that they had been immersed in Egypt, all of the idolatry, all of the false ideas had to be abandoned and left behind in Egypt, lest it infect their lives. 
Because false teaching is contagious and infectious just like yeast is to dough. And today there are all sorts of false ideas, all sorts of false teaching that is promoted, even the patterns of life that are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, the Pharisees, they were the separated ones. That's the idea behind Pharisee. Separated ones. They were the holier than thou's. They were the ones who didn't touch a Gentile. You touch a Gentile, you're unclean. You touch uh, somebody who who's, uh, has a disease, you're unclean. You know? That's why they didn't touch. They were separated, even from Jews, their own people who were not very, not very uh, wholesome. They separated themselves. Not like Jesus, who ate and associated with people that were sinners. How about you? How about you? At work, do you engage with people who are lost, people who don't act like you, people who don't talk like you, people who maybe use foul language here and there? Do you try to make friends reach them for Christ? Do you see your workplace as a mission field, or do you see your workplace as a minefield do you see your coworkers as people to reach to win for the Lord, or you see these people and you say, these are sinners and I need to avoid them lest I be like them or something like that? Are you a separated one? That's what the Pharisees would think. The Pharisee might even look down on some that would be sinners. The Sadducees, they were the liberals. They really didn't believe heavily in the supernatural. They weren't pursuing a deeper, closer relationship with God. They were very worldly-minded. They believed in making money from the temple. They believed in power. They believed in wealth. That was their mindset. What's your mindset when you talk with your kids about college, about their education, about their career? Is it all about grooming them for a moralistic, practical humanistic view of following the American dream, choose something where you can make plenty of money and follow this career path and little thought goes into their spiritual life when they leave. It was nice the other day, the other week, the other month, I should say, having one of the college students come and share with our high school group about how they were using their career and education for something that was good for God's glory and doing good. Because you see, your career is a means to an end. Your career is a means to an end, and that end is to bring glory to God, right? Your career making money is all for the purpose of bringing glory to God, using your skills to bring glory to God, seeing your job as an opportunity to win others to the Savior. You know, I remember when our church was really small, and I had to work part-time here and part-time in a secular job. And the one thing that I really missed, and many times I think about it, is the opportunity to make friends with those who don't know the Lord. Because you meet all sorts of people. I met all sorts of people. And eventually, of course, they'd find out I was Christian. They eventually would find out I was a pastor. And that would be, to me, a good thing. They didn't involve me in any, you know, unethical practices. They didn't bother asking me, I'm sure. They didn't involve me in office gossip. 
Sometimes they'd even talk about me behind my back. I remember this one time there was like a, a partition here, and I was on the other side of the partition. And there was one lady, a coworker of mine, talking to another coworker of mine, and they, she, she was just saying she didn't know I was there. She said, "You better watch out. He's a pastor, and he's going to try to convert you." <laughs> that didn't offend me one bit. It shouldn't offend you. You know why I was thinking? That's right. You better watch out. I mean, how do you look at your workplace? you look at it as a mission field or a minefield? Are you like the Sadducees who just think about, oh, gosh, I can get overtime pay. 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 7 tells us, Paul tells Timothy, be constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Do you know what that phrase means? Worldly fables fit only for old women. It was an epithet that Paul used in that day related to the philosophy of that day. All that garbage that people talk about, Timothy, you keep away from that. Keep away from that garbage. In the book Reckless Faith, the author writes, quote, the Apostle John drew a very sharp distinction between Christianity and the spirit of Antichrist. As he zealously held the line, John commanded those under his spiritual oversight to be watchful and discerning and have nothing to do with Christ-denying errors or purveyors of it. Okay? Be watchful, be discerning, have nothing to do with Christ-denying errors or purveyors. Contrast, the author writes, today's Christian who soothe themselves with the opinion that few things are really black and white. Doctrinal issues, moral questions, and Christian principles are all cast in hues of gray. No one is supposed to draw any definitive lines or declare any absolutes. Every person is to encourage to do what is right in their own eyes, exactly what God forbade. The culture around us has declared war on all standards, and the church is unwittingly following suit. It has become quite popular among Christians to assert that almost nothing is really black and white. Virtually all issues of right, wrong, true, and false good and bad, are all painted in shades of gray. Many Christians assume this is the proper way of understanding truth. It is, once again, a capitulation to the relativism of an existential culture, unquote. That's today's Christian. Most everything is gray. Why? Because I have a friend who believes this. I have another friend who believes that. I have a friend who goes to that church, and they think this way, and that church thinks this way, and it's all a menagerie, and it's all okay. It's all good. There are all sorts of ideas that are floating around in this world, catchphrases. Sometimes I listen to the radio, you know, the Christian radio, and oh, it bothers me. You've got to love yourself. You ever hear that on a song? Bad theology. People encourage you to forgive yourself. I hear that all the time, even from Christians. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to do that. Be proud of yourself. Just believe in yourself. God wants you to be prosperous in a material way, and there's a flood of ideas coming into the church, whether it's ideas about church growth and marketing, whether it's the bandwagon of social justice, whether it's the growing number of churches accepting LGBTQAI plus lifestyle, whatever it is, doctrinally 50 to 70 years have passed. There's a lot more that has flooded 
the church in all of its teaching. And Christians capitulate. Let's accommodate. Let's accommodate all of these thinkings, all of these teachings, and in Paul's words to Timothy, all of these old wives' tales. What happens? Christians are flooded. They're flooded with so many different views. It is hard to know what is true and what is not true anymore. And Christians easily say, it's all secondary. It doesn't really matter what church you go to. As long as they believe Jesus is God, salvation is by grace alone. This happens in the world as well. And there's an article, a cover story in The Economist, an international magazine. It was entitled this, Yes, I'd Lie to You, the Post-Truth World. And the argument in the article was about the dishonesty, the dishonesty that's wrecking havoc in politics and journalism, social media, and many other areas of common life. And one expert quoted in the article said, right now, it pays to be outrageous, but not to be truthful. The article highlighted that one of the most effective ways to tell lies by hiding is by hiding the truth in a glut of information. Information glut is the new censorship, says Zainab Chufeki of the University of North Carolina, adding that other governments are now employing similar tactics. China's authorities, for instance, do not try to censor everything they do not like on social media, but often flood the networks with distracting information. Similarly, in post-coup Turkey, the number of dubious posts and tweets has increased sharply. Quote, even I can no longer really tell what's happening in parts of Turkey, said Ms. Trufeki, who was born in that country, unquote. And I think Satan does the same thing. Satan does the same thing. He floods the world with all of these false ideas, and some of them contradict one another. They're not consistent because he really doesn't care. They're all false anyways. But you flood the church. You flood people with all of these false ideas. And the undiscerning Christian says, it's all good. I like them. Nice guy. I like what he has to say because it matches what I sort of think. But even if it doesn't, it's all right. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And you have this postmodern acceptance because of our relativism and our existential culture that we live in. In our postmodern culture, truth is not personal. Truth is personal, I should say. Truth is not absolute. And there's no longer desire to stand for what is true. And Jesus says here, beware of the teaching of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the question is, how discerning are you? How discerning are you when it comes to thinking clearly about biblical truth? Or is everything thrown into shades of gray? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 gives us a few principles as to how you can do so in a very practical way. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. It lays out three things you need to do if you're going to be a discerning person. It says this. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the first thing, if you're going to be a discerning person, is to test everything. Test everything. 
So it says, examine everything carefully. Now, the Greek word translated examine is dokimazo. Dokimazo, it means to test. It means to analyze. It refers to the process of testing something to see if it is genuine, like testing of precious metals. And what Paul is saying, he is saying to the believers, it's not just the church leadership, he is saying to the believers in the Thessalonian church, examine everything critically, judge everything, test truth. You've got to know biblical doctrine if you're going to be able to test and judge whether something is true or not. That's your duty. Examine everything. Don't just be some sort of passive sponge. Don't be some sort of passive sponge, but be a good Berean thinker. Test everything. Secondly, guard truth. Guard truth. That's what we're to do. Hold fast to what is good. It's an echo of Romans 12.9. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And that expression, cling, or to hold fast to, is what Paul repeats to Timothy. When you read the pastoral epistles, when Paul writes to Timothy, he tells Timothy, his young protege, this young pastor who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, he says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. You guard that truth. Secondly, retain the sound standard of words or the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Guard through the Holy Spirit what dwells in you, the treasure that has been entrusted to you. End quote. 2 Timothy 1, 13, 14. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, I've given you truth, doctrinal truth, that you are to guard against possible threats. Test everything. Guard what you know to be true Thirdly, keep away from false doctrine. Keep away from false doctrine. Same warning as Jesus gave to these disciples. Abstain from every form of evil. In this context, it refers, I believe, to false teaching, evil teaching. Abstain means to, is a strong verb. It says keep away, shun, shun. It's the same word that's used when it says abstain from sexual immorality or abstain from fleshly lust. It doesn't mean dabble in it or manage it. It means you keep away. You shun it. That's what you're to do to false doctrine. Test everything. Guard the truth. Keep away from false doctrine. Why? Because antagonists will promote false ideas, false teaching. And most oftentimes, Satan doesn't come out with horns and a pitchfork and blatantly say something that you know to be not true, like Jesus is something, something. What he'll do is he'll mix truth and error, and what he will do is weave lies with the truth. Sometimes Satan uses people who are good communicators, somebody who's likable, somebody who's persuasive, whatever it might be. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 7, 15, beware of the false prophets who come what? Who come to you in sheep's clothing. They don't come in some red suit with a long tail. They come in sheep's clothing, inwardly are ravenous wolves. Hear Jesus. Hear Jesus. He warns his disciples about the false teaching that antagonists will come with, knowing that they will come and try to test God. And they will test you too, to try to discredit you, that they might discredit your testimony for Christ. But the Psalms encourage us when it says in Psalm 119.6, 
Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Beware of ungodly antagonists, because they will come if they haven't already. Let's pray. We pray, Father, that you would hone our minds, that you would help us to be discerning, and that, Father, you would teach us your ways. We pray, Father, that we might love your word all the more, that, Father, we might look deeply into it and treasure it and hold fast to what is true. And we pray, God, that you would bring upon our hearts conviction, that we might have more than just opinions about what is true, but convictions by which we live and die by. For your namesake and your glory, amen.